Good evening. Good to see you guys. It seems like it's been forever since I've been here, even though I was here last week. What we are going to do is the book of Jude tonight. I know I keep saying we're going to do Romans, but I'm trying to put Romans off. The reason being is next Thursday I'm leaving for La Paz, Mexico, and I'm going to be gone from the 19th to the 24th. And so I'll, I'll leave right after, you know, Wednesday next week I'll leave, and then I'll be coming back late Tuesday. Like I land in Tijuana at like 11, and then I'm going to have some people pick me up, and then I'm going to drive from their place home at like 11.30 or something. So I won't get home till late. And then we'll start another, you know, teaching Wednesday. And and I just really want uh, to put a lot of uh, focus on Romans, and I'd like to try and promote it so that everyone can be here because it's it's a lot that we want to cover in that book, and I hope it'll be something that's useful to all of us. But I've been putting it off so maybe that I could have a little bit of time to really focus on it where I'm not so distracted going to Mexico, coming back from Mexico, and then teaching. So I don't know what we'll do next week. Um, I will be here next week. It'll be right before I go to Mexico. So that's kind of what's on my mind. Anyway, but tonight we are talking about the book of Jude. And so, before we read it, just a, a little bit of information. Jude was either, this is the two most likely cases on who the author really is. Jude is either, well, the word Jude is actually an Anglicized, if that's a word, it's an Anglican form of the word Judas or Judah. And so Jude is either Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, which we see not Iscariot, but the other Judas we see in Matthew chapter 13, or it is either the brother of Jesus. Actually, John 14 is the other disciple. Matthew 13 is the brother of Jesus. Most people think it is Jesus' brother, just like James was. And we see that at the beginning when he says Jude, the brother of James. What James is he referring to that he believe it is the James who is the pastor in the church in Jerusalem. All this to say that we're not positive who the author is, but most likely it is either a disciple of Jesus or Jesus' brother who came to faith after the resurrection. It's again a short book. It's something that we're going to cover tonight. I feel it's important as we go through some of these shorter epistles to capture the full uh, movement of what is taking place. I, I don't think Jude wrote this letter with the intention of us to read two verses and pick it apart. I think he wanted to make a statement through this whole letter, and it's pretty simple and it's pretty clear, this statement. And sometimes when we want to get so in-depth, we actually become obscure. And we need to be careful because we start applying the things that Jude is writing to the people reading this letter at that time to 
everything that it means to us. There's application, no doubt. But it was intended for something, and we need to find out the intention and then take that attention and bring in the application. Does that make sense? So that we understand his intent for writing it, we don't distort his intention by just picking out little parts here and there and then making them say what we want. And we tried to do that even in the Gospel of John. Now, we couldn't do that in one sitting. It's too long, but... I don't think a sermon that Jesus gave was meant to last three weeks. Yeah, you could spend a lot of time looking at it, but you need to grasp what that sermon is saying. It would be like you listening to one of my talks and dissecting it over three weeks. Now, you wouldn't do it because they're not that good, but you also wouldn't do it because you would miss the volume of what's being said. It's meant to come at us with a point, and it might have an illustration, but then it's also going to have a conclusion. It's trying to get somewhere. And if we start dissecting things too much, we don't ever get there. You know what I'm saying? We just kind of talk and talk about this, and then we take this rabbit trail on this subject, and we take a rabbit trail here. And I want to be careful that we don't do that. Let's read this, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. We'll go through and read the whole thing, since, again, it's not very long. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire in the very same way. On the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed on themselves. 
They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn leaves without fruit, and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever." Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in the ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. And Father, we do pray as we discuss the things in this short letter, Lord, that we would do so wisely, accurately, and effectively, Lord, that the things we read here tonight would have meaning to us today. We thank you again for your words and for how powerful they are and how they do speak throughout the ages. Speak through them to us tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a hard-hitting epistle. I mean, there's some heavy things in this epistle. And we need to understand who he's talking to. Because if we just take this and apply it wherever we feel like it, we can get into trouble. Jude is dealing with a couple of heresies at his time. There was one that's called the Antinomians, and you see that in verse 4 where it says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immortality. Immorality, excuse me. These people perverted the grace of God by saying that sin did not matter. In fact, whenever we did sin, God's grace was even more bountiful. Reminiscence of Paul's words in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid. Their whole idea was that sin is irrelevant because we do not live under God's law. We are only under grace so you can do whatever you want and they did. 
And so they lived just lustful, um, just decadent lives. They were just continually consuming their appetites. And so that is one group that he's talking about. The other is the Gnostics who follow natural instincts and do not have the spirit of God, he talks about in verse 19. The Gnostics, again, didn't believe that Jesus was actually a body, that he only was a spirit, that everything that was of the flesh was bad and only the spirit was good, and so the flesh doesn't matter, only the things of the spirit. And we start to see this hierarchy developing in people's minds who started coming into the church. We have a revelation from God that you don't. We hear from God certain things and you don't. And so you have to listen to us because we are more spiritual than you are. We have understanding about these things. And they started using this in the early church, even as we talked about through the epistles of John, how There would be traveling evangelists that would come throughout and they would start teaching. Some of them were good and needed support that John wanted to give to some, like in 3 John where he talks about Gaius and giving support to, I forget his name, Demetrius, I think it was. But then there's others who would come in and they were using people. They were there to get money. They were there to get whatever they could. And they started infiltrating the church and causing a lot of problems. And so Judah's dealing with those who believe that grace means you can live and do whatever you want and those who believe that only the things of the Spirit matter. That's who he's addressing specifically in this letter. And so understanding that is important because we don't want to broaden this to areas where it doesn't go. We want to keep it on tact with what, why he is condemning these people. And we'll find out why throughout this thing. And before we get into the heart of these people that he's condemning, he starts off with to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, fa- God, <laughs> excuse me, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. The idea of called, I want to talk about that just briefly because the word is that of summoning someone to an office, to a duty, to a responsibility. And its intent is that of the whole letter. You are called for a purpose. You are summoned for a task, a duty, a responsibility in the service of Christ. It's the word for summoning a person to a feast, to a festival. It's a word that's used for an invitation. And, and so God call, God's call goes out to, to everyone, although every man does not accept it or receive that call. And this means that for every man, God has a purpose. The Christian is a person who submits themselves to the purpose of God for their life. The call is the call to be loved and to love. God calls us to a task, but that task is an honor. It's not a burden. God calls us to service, but it is the service of of fellowship. It's not a service of tyranny. We're not being called to be slaves under his tyrant rule. We're being called into this place of service. 
That's what it means to those who have been called. We have been called by God for the purpose of God. We have responded to that purpose. We are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for or by Jesus Christ. It could be either one. And the whole idea is you are being summoned by God for a purpose. You have been summoned by God to be used for his purpose. That's what the idea of called means, as we're going to see the rest of this little letter. He kind of fulfills that towards the end. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. The word love is very important in this epistle, even though it's hard-hitting. He starts off with love, and he's going to end strong with love, and in between, he's going to deal with some things, and he's dealing with it because of love because of his love for God's people and not wanting to destroy the message of Jesus that saves us. Dear friends, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled and urged you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So he is planning on writing something else But he instead had to write this because of what was happening. I really wanted to talk to you about the salvation that we share. But I had to talk to you about this instead. And the reason is because if we don't deal with this destruction, perversion of who Jesus is and what he came to do, then the salvation that we want to share will start to become polluted and diluted. And as I said in verse 4, he kind of starts to open up what these things is. He says, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God, pervert, excuse me, pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. There is a huge difference between being free from sin and being free to sin, right? What does it mean to be free from sin? Anybody? What does that mean to you? Eileen? Okay. Any other thoughts? So what does it mean to be free from them? Our desires changed. We are not in bondage, like you said. We have purpose in life to now live for God where before there was an absence of purpose. In that absence of purpose, there is also uh, an absence of direction in life. Free from sin means that the destruction and the brokenness of humanity no longer is our limit. In other words, it's no longer what holds us. We are now bound by God's mercy and love and grace. And so free from sin means I'm not held under that bondage. I'm I'm not under the obligation of sin. It, It also means that I am not spiritually subject to the results of sin. The wage of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I am no longer under those wages. I'm not under that penalty. I am free from the penalty of sin. 
free from sin means it no longer has claim on who I am. I am free from that claim that sin had on humanity and had on me. And that's the idea of free from sin. It no longer determines my destiny. My destiny is now determined by the grace of the Lord. Free to sin, which is what they were saying, meant that you can go ahead and sin because God is graceful. God is gracious. God will forgive you. It doesn't matter. But it does matter. We are no longer under the penalty of sin, but we are not to live under the bondage of sin. And so this is at the heart of what Jude is addressing here because as the Christian views started to spread out throughout the Gentile world, there also started to come into the belief system things from outside of the Christian mindset and the Christian views. A lot of pagan beliefs started to come in and even some Jewish ones, the legalistic ones. And so there's a constant war against these false beliefs. And this is what Jude is talking about. You can't just live as if it doesn't matter how you live. You can't sin because you know that God is gracious and it doesn't matter. That's not in the heart of God, and that's one of the points he's dealing with. Verse 5, he says, though you already know all this, that means... The examples that he kind of talks about, the examples that he has given for certain individuals, he compelled to write them, they pervert the grace of God, giving a license, deny Jesus Christ. You, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of, and he gives three examples here, Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment of the day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So you already know this because... Look what happened in Egypt. Look what happened to the angels. Look what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know this because these are giving us examples. And the idea of the example of Egypt, what did God do? He, he called his people out, delivered his people from Egypt, but destroyed those in the desert who did not believe. And that's in Numbers 13. He talks about that. What's the point here? Well, Christ came to set us free. Christ came to deliver us. But if you do not believe, you're in the same boat as those children of Israel who left Egypt but did not believe. They were delivered, but they didn't believe. And so the judgment was still upon them. Just because Jesus came and died on a cross doesn't mean you're delivered from sin. You have to believe in him and what that meant. If you don't utilize that, appropriate that gift that he's giving you into your life, then it has no effect. Just like the children of Israel, when they left, delivered from Egypt, but they still died, some of them, because why? They didn't believe. 
And so he's giving illustrations that they know about. They, they're to put this together and see that, you know, God has always required holiness from his people. Look at this. And he's using the Old Testament to give the examples of why this is still true. When he talks about the angels, angels were created by God. They were there to be ministers to God. They didn't keep their position, but they abandoned it. And then they were kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for the judgment of the great day. Jude is speaking to his people in terms that they would understand and telling them if, like the angels, where pride and their own desire ruined their position and privileges, pride and your own desires can ruin yours as well. And then the last example, he says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality, which was one of the sins that were paramount with these people. It's interesting the part that sexuality plays in a lot of religions with Muslims and Islam. You know, if you are a good Muslim man and you die, you will have seven virgins waiting for you. With Mormons and celestial wives, that you will have all these wives. And because most of the religions are dominated or originate from men, kind of has a man bent to it. You know, the wives don't get a bunch of husbands. You know, it's the husband that gets a bunch of wives. And we see that man's passions and desires really do dictate his own personal beliefs. And then you have a God who comes along and says, I I want you to live sexually pure. I I want you to love your wife and to leave father and mother and to not have many wives, even though they did in the Old Testament. And we start seeing that this God is requiring more from us that is separate from just the natural desires. Monogamy is not a natural tendency for men, but it's a godly requirement. Why? Why would God want us to go against those natural desires? Well, what are some other natural desires? Gluttony is a pretty good one. If I didn't care, I I could eat myself to death. And in some cultures, if you're overweight, you're considered prosperous. It's a sign of wealth. Anything that we just indulge in can become a problem. And, And all... Virtues really can be tainted and become vices. And so, once again, we see that what God is trying to do is give us a virtuous life. And if we just give in to any natural desire, all of a sudden it becomes a vice. And it taints those things. And so, he's giving these examples of how 
God dealt with unbelief, how God dealt with pride, how God dealt with immorality. And those are the characteristics of these people that he's dealing with. And so he gives that to them. Now, it's interesting some of the words that are used because he destroyed in verse 6, or verse 5, those who did not believe. In verse 6, they did not keep their position. In verse 7, they gave themselves up. And so we see that there is a decision being made to these actions. They did these things. And so if you do similar things, similar judgment waits upon you. The judgment of God is not something that God gets mad and then he judges you. You know, it's not like my kids when, you know, they do something or did something wrong when they were little and they broke something and then I got mad at them. The the judgment of God is something that's always there. And, And what happens is when we move to that place of, say, unbelief or pride or immorality, God's judgment is there. So we actually move ourselves into the place of his judgment. It's not like, oh, I did something, now God's going to get me. No, you moved your life into a place where his judgment exists. Isn't that understandable? It's not that God's like, I'm going to get you for that. It's like, no, you move to the place where the judgment of God is because the character of God requires it. And so it's important that we recognize that. And then he says, in the very same way, He's comparing these evil men with the false prophets from Scripture, with those angels who were fallen, with the people from Sodom and Gomorrah. And as he moves into that, remember, one of the things that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah was how they treated the angels. Those two messengers that were God's messengers, angels, that came in and how they treated them. They wanted to abuse them sexually. And so he moves in the very same way on the strength of their dreams. These ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, heap abuse on celestial beings. Now, exactly what he means, we don't know when he says, you know, heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputed with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said... The Lord rebuke you. Now, Jude is alluding to some other writings here, some other books that the Jewish people believed. And it was believed that the body of Moses, when he was to be buried, that the angel was going to take him, but the devil said, you can't have him because Moses is a murderer. And You can't take him because he murdered someone, that Egyptian back there. You can't take him because of his fault. And that was the idea and tradition. And he's just using something that they understood when he says the the angel, Michael, the archangel, didn't even contend. He didn't say, no, you better give him to me. He just instead said, the Lord rebuke you. It could be that these teachers didn't believe in angels at all, 
It could be that they just were, you know, saying that they were above the angelic host and trying to use authority. We, we don't really know exactly what was going on when these things were taking place. But what's tragic is that they were giving in to natural tendencies rather than the spiritual ones. And that's the condemnation that's here. The Lord rebuke you, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do will destroy them. In other words, they're acting like beasts. It's tragic that a person, everyone is born with a sense of spirituality or spiritual things, but we can lose that sense if we continue to live like animals. When a person just gives in to whatever they want and they become sensual people, the voice of God starts to become very dim and the voice of their senses starts to become very loud. And so whatever you lend your members to, those are the servants you will become. And so these people started acting like animals, even though they were created in the image of God. And if a person consistently refuses to listen to God and makes their instincts the sole dynamic of how they live, how they conduct themselves, in the end, they're going to be unable to hear the voice of God because there'll be nothing left but just an animal. And that's who they will serve as their just natural desires. And that's what he says there. They will destroy him. What a shame that a person has the ability to hear the voice of God, but because they're consumed with just what they want, they will destroy themselves. And they will no longer be able to hear. Just like he says, they gave themselves to. They will be like these people who gave themselves to these things. And pretty soon, those things became their character, their nature. And it's one of those lessons that we have to sit back and and recognize that this is true for humanity. If we will give ourselves over to God, we will become more and more like him. If we will give our behavior over to just natural instincts, we will become more and more just like animals. And we see that, don't we? I mean, society, there are so many times you'll read a story and you'll just think, oh my gosh, how could someone be that horrific? How could someone do those kinds of things to to children? How could someone treat people so cruelly? How could they? Well, they're acting just like animals. There's no conscious understanding of God. And so he says, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. And again, he gives some illustrations. Cain was a murderer. He murdered. They're murdering others with their false belief. They have rushed for the prophet into Balaam's error. Balaam was, again, an idol which led Israel into captivity. So they're moving into that place. And they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah 
was in number 16, he stood for a person who refused to accept the authority that God had given to Moses. And they want to be their own authority. So they're defying the authority of the apostles of the church that was given to them by Christ. And so he's using, again, illustrations that they would understand. Oh, we know Cain. We know Balaam. We know Korah. He's equating these people with them. Oh, we know all about these other things. We know about the things that God had judged in Egypt. We know about the fallen angels. We know about Sodom and Gomorrah. These are all things that these people would have understanding of. These people, verse 12, are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed on themselves. Now, Remember what the love feasts were. They would get together on the times that would meet on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday usually, and they would remember the Lord and take communion together. But first they would eat. They would have dinner together and everyone would come. And so you would have people who were wealthy, people who were slaves, people who had a lot of food, people who had no food. Some of these people, the love feast was probably the only time they got to eat a good and decent meal. It was probably the best time they ate All week was when they came to one of these love feasts. And then you had other people who had, well, plenty of food. And so they could eat. And and Paul dealt with this in Corinthians. Remember in Corinthians 11, how is it that some of you have a lot and you don't give to those who are in need? Don't you understand the whole purpose of Christ's sacrifice was to give? And here you are being selfish. This shouldn't be. Well, these people would come in and again and they would just take. They were there at their love feast, and he says they're blemishes at their love feast who feed on themselves. So instead of just eating the Lord's Supper, they're feeding on themselves. It's all about their appetite. And he gives these other illustrations, clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Especially in Palestine at that time, if you depended on rain and you saw clouds, you were hopeful. But what happens when the cloud just blows in and there's nothing in it? That's the illustration. These guys are just like clouds, but there's no rain. They're like trees, but there's no fruit. There's nothing you're going to get from these people. They are there just for themselves. Uprooted, twice dead. Just powerful illustrations. You know, promising to give them something, but never delivering anything. And a promise without... Performance is useless. If a person is not good for something, they're not good for anything. And that's what they're basically. These people are good for nothing. They're here to use you. And Jude is very adamant about that. And then verse 13, they are wild waves of the seas, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. That's just a haunting verse. It's poetic, but it's haunting. And this illustration is very similar from one that is used in the book of Enoch. And it's the idea is the fate of the wandering stars is typical to the fate of the man who disobeys God's commandments. The wandering stars in Enoch's book is that of angels. And then verse 14, he goes right into that understanding. We get understanding that he is talking about. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. 
and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Let me ask you this. Where did Enoch prophesy that? Anyone have an idea? Where is it that we see this prophecy of Enoch? Nobody? Nobody? None of your notes tell you? He's quoting from the book of Enoch. Okay. Any questions? Why is the book of Enoch not in the Bible? Or here's another question. By him quoting from the book of Enoch, does that mean that it should be in the Bible? I love your faces. You guys are like, what are you doing? What are you trying to do here? In that day, there were a lot of writings that the Jews would read that they didn't necessarily consider Holy Scripture, but still read and were familiar with. No doubt at the time when Jude was writing this, as well as in the days of Jesus, Enoch was a popular book, Okay, which every pious Jew would know and he would read. Ordinarily, when the New Testament writers wanted to confirm their words, they would quote the Old Testament, using it as the word of God, the scriptures, but the fact is that Jude, who was a Jew, knew and loved the book of Enoch and had grown up in a circle where it was regarded and respected, maybe even reverence, like, oh, this is a great writing. It could be great literature. It could be great stories. But it didn't have to necessarily be considered holy scripture. And so quoting it was perfectly natural. Okay, He is simply doing really what a lot of the New Testament writers did, as every writer has to do in that age, and that's speak to people in the language what they recognize and understand. I think it's important to recognize that Jude had no problem quoting this particular set of writings that was not a part of the Hebrew sacred texts, but still could draw from it to make a point. Can anyone think of a time when Paul did that? In Acts chapter 17... In him we live and move and have our being, as your own poets have said. We are his offspring. That wasn't Jewish writings. Those weren't sacred writings. Those were actually pagan writings. Paul took their writings, brought them into a context where he was bringing out an illustration. Can we use other writings that are familiar to make a point? Or does it have to be found in Scripture? That's a question. We can use other things, right? There's, It's not forbidden. And the fact that Jude does this, it shouldn't cause any qualms. And that was one of the points that I, I wanted to make. You see, we get into a place where because of our traditions, because of our understanding and where we have come, it's, these are the kinds of things that when you say something like this, it causes everyone to freak out. The book of Enoch, why is he quoting the book of Enoch? Why shouldn't he quote the book of Enoch? Why shouldn't Paul quote pagan philosophers? Is there anything forbidden about it? What's forbidden about it? Well, our culture has made it taboo. Oh, you don't quote other writings. You just quote the Bible. And we use the Bible to prove the Bible. 
And then the people outside who don't read the Bible but will read other writings, why can't I use those writings to help them understand what the truth is that we believe in the Scripture? I remember talking to a young man, and his Bible was Metallica. Whatever Metallica said, that's kind of how he believed. He believed Metallica was prophets. Now, you guys might think that's stupid, but there are probably more people who know Metallica lyrics than you would imagine who don't know any of the Bible. It's a rock band. Okay. And so there we go. You know, that diversity. And so can I use Metallica lyrics to bring people to an understanding of truth that is found in Scripture? Why not? You see, he, he's not walking on shaky ground. It's not a big deal. We've made it a big deal. And it's important that we recognize these things because otherwise, you know, we, we limit ourselves in our ability to communicate effectively. We have to use the language of our time. One of our core values is, you know, this has that at the essence that, you know, our relevance to culture is not optional. You have to be relevant. You have to be. You know, we have to understand those things as they take place. Um, and then he goes on and gives more illustrations about them. He says these people are grumblers, fault finders, their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. They flatter others for their own advantage. The grumblers, they're like children of Israel in the wilderness. They're low mutter of resentful discontent. They're just this kind of talking bad all the time. The fault finders are always blaming others. And these are interesting characteristics. And they're, do you grumble a lot? Do you blame people a lot? Don't answer that yourself. Ask someone to tell you, do I grumble a lot? And listen to what they say. Because it's easy for you to say, oh, I'm not a grumbler. And then you ask your wife, do I complain a lot? Oh, gosh, you complain a lot. I do? I don't think. Do I blame people? Oh, yeah, you blame people all the time. Ooh, that's bad. I'm fitting into, this is part of their character. Is that part of our character? Boast about themselves, flatter others for their own advantage. These are subtle things, but they're important. And so he's trying to bring about the clarity here. Okay, This is all a picture of their character. And then he says, but dear friends, remember that the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ were told, they said to you, this is what they told you about, in the last times there would be these scoffers. And again, this could be oral tradition or it could be some of Paul's writing in Timothy. These are people who divide you, he says in verse 19, who follow mere natural instincts. There it is again, living like animals, do not have the spirit. So they don't belong to Christ. They don't have the spirit. Dividing God's people is a very bad thing. They divide you. And what I think is important, when we read a powerful, hard-hitting text like this, if we don't distinguish what Jude is writing about, pretty soon we will include everyone we don't agree with in this book. 
And so if you don't like Joel Olstein, there he is. He fits in this description. If you don't like Erwin McManus, there he is. He fits in this description. And people will do that with the scripture, even though that is not at all who Jude is talking about. People have no problem labeling and dividing. There are followers of Christ who I disagree with in a whole lot of ways, but I need to be careful that I don't try and divide them and be divisive and cause some kind of schism of us versus them. I'm going to hold to the things that I believe the scripture says. They're going to hold to the things they believe the scripture says. If opportunity comes for discussion, I'm happily going to talk to them or to you. I mean, this is what I've been doing for the past few years is sharing with you the things I believe the scriptures share clearly. And you guys are here, so I'm guessing you believe that too. But there are people who do not believe the same things that we believe concerning Scripture. And I've shared about those things before. There are some people who think, you know, we're off the wall. Some people believe that just because we believe you have to make a decision to follow Christ, that we're heresy, teaching heresy. There's all kinds of things out there. Are we being divisive? Are we, are we causing that kind of division? Because that's what these people were known for. And why are you causing division? Whenever you start trying to feed your own belief system or ways, you got to be careful. He goes, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, building yourself up in the holy faith. The life of the Christian is founded not on something which we manufacture, but on something that we receive. It's faith in Christ, faith in the teachings that Christ gave to his disciples, to the apostles, to us. Remember, faith always requires a subject. Faith isn't there. You have faith in something. You don't just have faith. Now, who's that one sportscaster who always says, keep the faith? James Hill, or what's his? Something. Anyway, it's like, keep the faith. It's like, faith in what? You know, faith in football? Faith in baseball? What do you keep your faith in? Our faith is in something. You know, you, you don't just have more faith. You have more faith in something. And so it's important to understand you have keeping the faith. We're building up on what? What is this faith that we're building? It's our faith on the person and work of Jesus Christ, building ourselves up in our most holy faith, who Jesus is, what he did, and praying in the Holy Spirit. This is, again, in contrast to these people who are all about themselves. Prayer in the Holy Spirit means prayer with the character of God's Spirit. Okay, it's not talking about praying in a different tongue or things like that. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in the character of God, as opposed to these people who are all using things for themselves. The character of the Holy Spirit is caring for others. Keep yourselves in God's love. I love that. Keep yourselves in God's love. There's a responsibility here. We have to keep ourselves in God's love. As you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life, be merciful to those who doubt. Oh, I love that. Those who doubt, show them mercy. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained 
by corrupted flesh. These are beautiful pictures. I mean, he's ending this so picturesque, so poetically. Merciful to those who doubt. Show them mercy. Don't get on a person who's doubting. Show them mercy. Don't expect more from someone than God does. And save others, snatching them from the fire. That has this this picture of urgency. There's the one saying that our clothes should smell like smoke because we are so near the fire, grasping these people out of the fire. That we should be so near that flame that we are snatching people there in our own clothes smell from the smoke of that fire and show others mercy mixed with fear. Interesting, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. You know, this is a difficult thing that we are called to do. We are called to show mercy to those who doubt. We are called to be the friends of sinners. And yet we have these people who are living lives of sin that Jude is condemning. And we're called to go into that world that is polluted and tainted and snatch people out of that fire, but we are not to be polluted or tainted. You see, those who would want to heal someone who is sick oftentimes find themselves in the very places where they too could get sick. If you work at a hospital, you're supposed to continually clean your hands because germs are everywhere. But you will do no good if you're not in that hospital. And so you need to be in that place, but you need to make sure that you're healthy. You need to go there with mercy mixed with fear that I don't want to end up there. Not fear of like, oh no, God's going to get me. Fear of... I want my salvation to be clear. This is self-distrust. This is tenderness of conscience. This is awareness of what God wants and who I want to be. And so mercy mixed with fear, having even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression, and so I want to make sure that my life is clear and clean. I was listening to another pastor. I need to stop doing this. I I get upset, but he was very adamant about how you maintain your Christian witness, and it was very legalistic. And it was so much so that you would not end up anywhere near the people who are sick. And it was unlike Jesus. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. He was called a drunkard. Why? Because he was with those who were drinking. And this person was adamant, if someone's drinking, you should stay away. And I I just was thinking, you know... I don't want to be considered a drunk, but I should have no problem being around people who drink. I just need to hate the garment that is stained by the flesh. I have no problem being around a prostitute wanting to share who Christ is, but I hate the garment that is stained. 
I, I have no problem being around a person who is of a different faith and sharing their beliefs with me, but I, I hate the clothing that is stained and corrupted by the flesh. And so this is the idea of mercy mixed with fear and, and not wanting anything to, to get in between me and who I am as a follower of Christ. But at the same time, I'm to show mercy to those who are doubting. I am to be in their vicinity because I have to snatch them from the fire. And this is a delicate life we have to live. And some people cannot be around those who drink because they have problems with drink. There are some people who can't be around prostitutes because they have problems with the flesh in that area. There are some people who can't be around certain other areas because they're susceptible to that. But it doesn't mean you can't still be involved with the people around you to some degree in some areas. So you have no problem with alcohol. Okay, you can go and hang out at the pub or the bar and talk to these people. I shouldn't say hang out, but you know what I mean. You can go there and be with these people. You know, I mean, it's amazing. You know, oh, you can't go to a bar. Well, Chili's has a bar. Do you go to Chili's? You know, there's the Elephant Bar. They have a bar. You know, I mean, there's. you just need to be careful. Otherwise, you'll go nowhere. I remember friends saying, well, I'm not going to go to any 7-Elevens because they sell alcohol. I go, well, so does Safeway. You know, so does Chipotle. Oh, no. I like Chipotle. And so we need to be careful. But, again, we are pressing in to the flames. We are pressing in, but we don't want to be stained. We can smell like smoke, but let's not be burned. And then the doxology at the very end, it's just beautiful. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I love that. Psalm 121 tells us, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over Israel will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And to present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy. I love with great joy. Not only without fault, but with great joy. Oh, yeah. Here he is. Here's Joe. Man, look at you, Joe. Beaming. Came in first place. That is a nice run. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. So even though he hits real hard, he's hitting specific things. And he ends very soft. When we went through our leadership advanced class, I drew a picture of a square. And I said, a lot of people who follow Christ have a hard exterior and then a soft center. And then the other illustration was the broken lines. We should have a soft exterior but a hard center. In other words, our core of belief, what we believe, we will not change but we will get around all those who believe different than we do. A lot of people, if you don't believe like me, you don't fit in the box and you are kept at hand's distance. Stay away. And here we have the contrast and living in this dichotomy of I have to be with these people. Some of them are very bad, causing destruction. This is their fate but I still need to show mercy to those who doubt. I still need to have compassion on these people and snatch them from the flame, but I still need to maintain my integrity. And so that's the balance that we have to live, and it's an important one to live this life.
Any questions from the things I shared? Anyone not coming back next week? Agnostic means without knowledge. Agnostic means they don't know. An atheist means I don't believe. And so there's an example. Let me throw this. Maybe some of you have heard the word agnostic means without knowledge, literally, but it also has the root word ignorant. Okay? And I've heard preachers say, you know, the word agnostic is ignoramus. And so if you're an agnostic, you're an ignoramus or you're ignorant. And that's tainting that. Instead of saying they don't knowledge, well, let me, I, I think of Paul in Acts 17, one of my favorite chapters, to the unknown God. You don't know him, let me make him known to you. Let me not call you names. You know what I mean? I'll call you, you're ignorant. That's what agnostic means. Like, you're not going to help anyone that way, you know. And so agnostic means that they don't know. They're not sure. There might be a God, but I don't know. Okay, and atheist means I don't believe him. There is a God. Eileen. Very true. Romans, oh man, I can't wait to get to Romans. Yeah. You know, Romans, at the heart of Romans is a covenant. And if you don't understand that Paul is addressing the covenant that God made with his people, you won't really fully grasp the, the progression that takes place in Romans. Because the whole argument about Romans is how can God be just if he's neglected his people, Israel? And so you start at the beginning of Romans really with Genesis and then you move through Exodus and the law and then actually into the prophets. Paul takes a journey through Romans that it's clear once you recognize it that it's there. And so Romans has opened up to me in an incredible way, so I can't wait to talk about it but not now, in a couple of weeks. We'll see. Any other thoughts? But that is a beautiful scripture. I love that scripture. If you don't go, how are they going to hear? Any other thoughts? Nope. Sorry to keep you long. Let's pray. There's more pie, I think, and coffee. Father, thank you again for this time. Lord, I pray that it is useful, again, in how we communicate and the importance of how we read and understand scripture, Lord. May we be accurate and rightly dividing your words that are true. We thank you again for our time together. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.